Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Chapter 13 Aircraft and Submarines by Willis J. Abbott. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by William Tomko. John P. Holland and Simon Lake, Part 1. The Naval Committee of the House of Representatives of the United States in the early part of 1900 held a meeting for the purpose of hearing expert testimony upon the subject of submarines. Up to then, the United States authorities had shown, as compared with the ruling powers of other navies, only a limited amount of interest in the submarine question. Increased appropriations for the construction of submarine boats, which were then beginning to become more frequent in other countries, acted, however, as a stimulus at this time. The committee meeting took place a few days after some of the members of the committee, together with a number of United States Navy officers, had attended an exhibition of a new submarine boat, the Holland No. 9. The late Admiral Dewey gave the following opinion about this submarine to the committee an opinion which since then has become rather famous. Gentlemen, I saw the operation of the boat down off Mount Vernon the other day. Several members of this committee were there. I think we were very much impressed with its performance. My aide, Lieutenant Caldwell, was on board. The boat did everything that the owners proposed to do. I said then, and I have said it since, that if they had two of those things at Manila, I could never have held it with the squadron I had. The moral effect, to my mind, it is infinitely superior to mines or torpedoes or anything of the kind. With two of those in Galveston, all the navies of the world could not blockade the place. Admiral Dewey's approval of the Holland No. 9 undoubtedly exerted a considerable influence on the Naval Committee, and as a result of its recommendations, the United States government finally purchased the boat on April 11, 1900, for $150,000. This amount was about $86,000 less than the cost of building to the manufacturers, the Holland Torpedo Boat Company. The latter, however, could well afford to take this loss, because this first sale resulted a few months afterwards, on August 25th, in an order for six additional submarines. The British government also contracted in the fall of the same year for five Hollands. The navy of almost every power interested in submarines soon followed the lead of the British Admiralty. Submarines of the Holland type were either ordered outright, or else arrangements were concluded permitting the use of the basic patents held by the Holland Company. It will be noted that the United States government, having discovered that it had a good thing, benevolently shared it with the governments that might be expected to use it against us. The Holland No. 9, as her very name indicates, was one of a long line of similar boats. As compared with other experimental submarine boats, she was small. She was only 53 feet 10 inches long and 10 feet 7 inches deep. Although these proportions made her look rather thick-set, they were the result of experimental work done by the builder during a period of 25 years. She was equipped both with a gasoline engine of 50 horsepower and an electric motor run by storage batteries. The latter was intended for use when the boat was submerged. 
the former when she was traveling on the surface of the water. She was capable of a maximum speed of seven knots an hour. Her cruising radius was 1,500 miles, and the combination of oil and electric motors proved so successful that from that time on every submarine built anywhere adopted this principle. Two horizontal rudders placed at the stern of the boat steered her downward whenever she wanted to dive, and so accomplished a diver was this boat that a depth of 28 feet could be reached by her in five seconds. Her conning tower was the only means of making observations. No periscopes had been provided because none of the instruments available at that time gave satisfaction. This meant that whenever she wished to aim at her target, it was necessary for her to make a quick ascent to the surface. Her stability was one of her most satisfactory features. So carefully had her proportions been worked out that there was practically no pitching or rolling when the boat was submerged. Even the concussion caused by the discharge of a torpedo was hardly noticeable, because arrangements had been made to take up the recoil caused by the firing and to maintain the balance of the boat by permitting a quantity of water equal to the weight of the discharged torpedo to enter special compartments at the very moment of the discharge. The Holland No. 9 was built at Lewis Nixon's shipyards at Elizabethport, New Jersey, and was launched early in 1898 just previous to the outbreak of the Spanish-American War. Although numerous requests were made to the United States government by her inventor and builder, John P. Holland, for permission to take her into Santiago Harbor in an attempt to torpedo Cervera's fleet, the Navy authorities at Washington refused this permission. Why? Presumably through Navy hostility to the submarine idea. When the Monitor whipped the Merrimack in 1862, the former ship belonged to her inventor, not to the United States government. It would have been interesting had Holland at his own expense destroyed the Spanish ships. John P. Holland, at the time when he achieved his success, was 58 years old, Irish by birth and an early immigrant to the United States. He had been deeply interested for many years in mechanical problems and especially in those connected with navigation. The change from the old wooden battleships to the new ironclads and the rapidly increasing development of steam engines acted as a strong stimulus to the young Irishman's experiments. It is claimed that his interest in submarine navigation was due primarily to his desire to find a weapon strong enough to destroy or at least dominate the British Navy, for at that time Holland was strongly anti-British because he, like many other educated Irishmen of that period, desired before everything else to free Ireland. His plans for doing this by supplying to the proposed Irish Republic a means for overcoming the British Navy found little support and a great deal of ridicule on the part of his Irish friends. In spite of this, he kept on with his work, and in 1875 he built and launched his first submarine boat at Patterson. This boat was far from being very revolutionary. She was only 16 feet long and 2 feet in diameter, shaped like a cigar, but with both ends sharply pointed. In many respects, except in appearance, she was similar to Bushnell's turtle. Room for only one operator was provided, and the latter was to turn the propeller by means of pedals to be worked by his feet. She accomplished little beyond giving an opportunity to her inventor and builder to gather experience in actual underwater navigation. Two years later, in 1877, the Holland No. 2 was built. In spite of the number of improvements represented by her, she was not particularly successful. 
Her double hull, it is true, provided space for carrying water ballast, but the leaks from this ballast tank continuously threatened to drown the navigator sitting inside of the second hull. A small oil engine of four horsepower was soon discarded on account of its inefficiency. The experience gathered by Holland in building and navigating these two boats strengthened his determination to build a thoroughly successful submarine and increased his faith in his ability to do so. He opened negotiations with the Fenian Brotherhood. This was a secret society founded for the purpose of freeing Ireland from British rule and creating an Irish Republic. Holland finally succeeded in persuading his Fenian friends to order from him two submarine boats and to supply him with the necessary means to build them. Both of these boats were built. The lack of success of the first one was due primarily to the inefficiency of her engine. The second boat, which was really the Holland No. 4, was built in 1881. It is usually known as the Fenian Ram, and is still in existence at New Haven, Connecticut, where a series of financial and political complications finally landed her. These two boats added vastly to Holland's knowledge concerning submarine navigation. A few others which he built with his own means increased this fund of knowledge, and step by step he came nearer to his goal. By 1888, his reputation as a submarine engineer and navigator had grown to such an extent that Holland was asked by the famous Philadelphia shipbuilders, the Cramps, to submit to them designs for a submarine boat to be built by the United States government. Only one other design was submitted, and this was by the Scandinavian Nordenfeld. William C. Whitney, then Secretary of the United States Navy, accepted Holland's design. Month after month passed by wasted by the usual government red tape, and when all preliminary arrangements had been made and the contract for the actual building of an experimental boat was to be drawn up, a sudden change in the administration resulted in the dropping of the entire plan. Holland's faith in the future submarine and in his own ability was still unshaken, but this was not the case with his financial condition. None of the boats he had built so far had brought him any profits, and on some he had lost everything that he had put into them. His financial support, for which he relied entirely upon relatives and friends, was practically exhausted. But fortunately, on March 3, 1893, Congress appropriated a sum of money to defray the expenses of constructing an experimental submarine. Invitations to inventors were extended. So precarious was Holland's financial condition at that time that he found it necessary to borrow the small sum of money involved in making plans which he had to submit. It is claimed that he succeeded in doing this in a manner highly typical of his thoroughness. He needed only about $350, but even this comparatively small sum was more than he had. However, he happened to be lunching with a young lawyer just about this time and began to tell him about his financial difficulties. Holland told him that if he only had $347.19, he could prepare the plans and pay the necessary fees and that done, he was sure of being able to win the competition. His lawyer friend, of course, had been approached before by other people for loans. Invariably, they had asked him for some round sum, and Holland's request for $347.19, when he might just as well have asked for $350, aroused his interest. He asked the inventor what the 19 cents were to be used for. Quick as a flash, he was told that they were needed to pay for a particular type of ruler necessary to draw the required plans. 
So impressed was the lawyer with Holland's accuracy and honesty in asking not a cent more than he actually needed that he at once advanced the money, and a good investment it turned out to be. For in exchange, he received a good-sized block of stock in the Holland Torpedo Boat Company, which in later years made him a multimillionaire. Holland's plans did win the competition, just as he asserted that they would. But, of course, winning a prize, offered by a government, and getting that government to do something about it, are two different matters. So, two years went by before the Holland Torpedo Boat Company, at last, was able to start with the construction of the new submarine, which was to be called the Plunger. The principal feature of this new boat was that it was to have a steam engine for surface navigation and an electric motor for underwater navigation. This arrangement was not so much a new invention of Holland's as an adaptation of ideas which had been promulgated by others. Especially indebted was he in this respect to Commander Hovgaard of the Danish Navy, who, in 1887, had published an important book on the subject of double propulsion in submarines. Though Holland had made many improvements on these earlier theories, he soon found out that even at that there was going to be serious trouble with the plunger's engines. The boat had been launched in 1897, but instead of finishing it, he persuaded the government to permit his company to build a new boat and to return to the government all the money so far expended on the plunger. The new boat, Holland No. 8, was started immediately and completed in record time, but she too was unsatisfactory to the inventor. So without loss of time, he went ahead and built another boat, the Holland No. 9, which, as we have said, became the first United States submarine. Two other men submitted plans for submarine boats in the competition which was won by the Holland boat, George C. Baker and Simon Lake. Neither of these was accepted. Mr. Baker made no further efforts to find out if his plans would result in a practicable submarine boat, but Simon Lake was not so easily discouraged. It is very interesting that the United States Navy Department at that time demanded that plans submitted for this competition should meet the following specifications. 1. Safety. 2. Facility and certainty of action when submerged. 3. Speed when running on the surface. 4. Speed when submerged. 5. Endurance, both submerged and on the surface. 6. Stability. 7. Visibility of object to be attacked. In spite of the many years that have passed since this competition, and in spite of the tremendous progress that has been made in submarine construction, these are still the essential requirements necessary to make a successful submarine boat. The design submitted by Mr. Lake provided for a twin-screw vessel, 80 feet long, 10 feet beam, and 115 tons displacement, with 400 horsepower steam engines for surface propulsion and 70 horsepower motors for submerged work. The boat was to have a double hull, the spaces between the inner and the outer hulls forming water ballast tanks. There were to be four torpedo tubes, two forward and two aft. In an article published in 1915 in International Marine Engineering, Mr. Lake says about his 1893 design, the new and novel feature which attracted the most attention and skepticism regarding this design was the author was later informed by a member of the board, the claim made that the vessel could readily navigate over the waterbed itself, and that while navigating on the waterbed, a door could be opened in the bottom of a compartment and the water kept from entering the vessel by means of compressed air, and that the crew could, by donning diving suits, readily leave and enter the vessel while submerged. 
Another novel feature was in the method of controlling the depth of submergence when navigating between the surface and waterbed. The vessel was designed to always submerge and navigate on a level keel, rather than to be inclined down or up by the back to dive or rise. This maintenance of a level keel while submerged was provided for by the installation of four depth-regulating vanes, which I later termed hydroplanes, to distinguish them from the forward and aft leveling vanes or horizontal rudders. These hydroplanes were located at equal distances forward and aft of the center of gravity and buoyancy of the vessel when in the submerged condition so as not to disturb the vessel when the planes were inclined down or up to cause the vessel to submerge or rise when under way. I also used, in conjunction with the hydroplanes, horizontal rudders, which I then called leveling vanes, as their purpose was just the opposite from that of the horizontal rudder used in the diving type of vessel. They were operated by a pendulum controlling device to be inclined so as to always maintain the vessel on a level keel rather than to cause her to depart therefrom. When I came to try this combination out in practice, I found hand control of the horizontal rudders was sufficient. If vessels with this system of control have a sufficient amount of stability, you will run for hours and automatically maintain both a constant depth and a level keel. Without the depth control, man touching either the hydroplane or horizontal rudder control gear. This automatic maintenance of depth without manipulating the hydroplanes or rudders was a performance not anticipated, nor claimed in my original patent on the above-mentioned combination, and what caused these vessels to function in this manner remained a mystery, which was unsolved until I built a model tank in 1905 in Berlin, Germany, and conducted a series of experiments on models of submarines. I then learned that a downpull of a hydroplane at a given degree of inclination varied according to its depth of submergence, and that the deeper the submergence, the less the downpull. This works out to give automatic trim on a substantially level keel, and I have known of vessels running for a period of two hours without variation of depth of one foot, and without once changing the inclination of either the hydroplanes or the horizontal rudder. A great deal of skepticism was displayed for many years toward this new system of controlling the depth of submergence, but in recent years all the latest submarine boats have been built on this plan. Who then was this mechanical genius who was responsible for these far-going changes in submarine construction? Simon Lake was born at Pleasantville, New Jersey, September 4, 1866. He was educated at Clinton Liberal Institute, Fort Plain, New York, and Franklin Institute, Philadelphia. Early in life, he displayed a marked interest in and genius for mechanical problems. His lack of success in the 1893 competition only spurred him on to further efforts. As long as the United States government was unwilling to assist him in building his submarine boat, there was nothing left for him except to build it from his own means. In 1894, therefore, he set to work on an experimental boat called the Argonaut Jr., According to Mr. Lake's description as published in International Marine Engineering, in a series of articles from his pen, the Argonaut Jr. was provided with three wheels, two on either side forward and one aft, the latter acting as a steering wheel. When on the bottom, the wheels were rotated by hand by one or two men inside the boat. Her displacement was about seven tons, yet she could be propelled at a moderate walking gait when on the bottom. 
She was also fitted with an airlock and diver's compartment, so arranged that by putting an air pressure on the diver's compartment equal to the water pressure outside, a bottom door could be opened and no water would come into the vessel. Then, by putting on a pair of rubber boots, the operator could walk around on the sea bottom and push the boat along with him, and pick up objects such as clams, oysters, etc., from the sea bottom. So much interest was aroused by this little wooden boat that Mr. Lake was enabled to finance the building of a larger boat called the Argonaut. It was designed in 1895 and built in 1897 at Baltimore. Concerning the Argonaut, Mr. Lake says in the same article, The Argonaut, as originally built, was 36 feet long and 9 feet in diameter. She was the first submarine to be fitted with an internal combustion engine. She was propelled with a 30-horsepower gasoline, petrol, engine, driving a screw propeller. She was fitted with two toothed driving wheels forward, which were revolved by suitable gearing when navigating on the waterbed, or they could be disconnected from this gearing and permitted to revolve freely, propulsion being secured by the screw propeller. A wheel in the rudder enabled her to be steered in any direction when on the bottom. She also had a diving compartment to enable divers to leave or enter the vessel when submerged, to operate on wrecks, or to permit inspection of the bottom, or to recover shellfish. She also had a lookout compartment in the extreme bow, with a powerful searchlight to light up a pathway in front of her as she moved along over the waterbed. This searchlight I later found of little value except for night work in clear water. In clear water, the sunlight would permit of as good vision without the use of the light as with it, while if the water was not clear, no amount of light would permit of vision through it for any considerable distance. In January 1898, says Mr. Lake, while the Argonaut was submerged, telephone conversation was held from submerged stations with Baltimore, Washington, and New York. In 1898 also, the Argonaut made the trip from Norfolk to New York under her own power and unescorted. In her original form, she was a cigar-shaped craft with only a small percentage of reserve buoyancy in her surface cruising condition. We were caught out in the severe November northeast storm of 1898, in which over 200 vessels were lost, and we did not succeed in reaching a harbor in the horseshoe back of Sandy Hook until, of course, in the morning. The seas were so rough they would break over her conning tower in such masses I was obliged to lash myself fast to prevent being swept overboard. It was freezing weather, and I was soaked and covered with ice on reaching harbor. This experience caused me to apply to the Argonaut a further improvement for which I had already applied for a patent. This was doubled around the usual pressure-resisting body of a submarine, a ship-shaped form of light plating which would give greater seaworthiness, better surface speed, and make the vessel more habitable for surface navigation. It would, in other words, make a sea-going submarine, which the usual form of cigar-shaped vessel was not, as it would not have sufficient surface buoyancy to enable it to rise with the seas, and the seas would sweep over it as they would sweep over a partly submerged rock. The Argonaut was, therefore, taken to Brooklyn, 20 feet added to her length, and a light watertight buoyancy superstructure of ship-shape form added. This superstructure was open to the sea when it was desired to submerge the vessel, and water was permitted to enter the space between the light plating of the ship-shape form and the heavy plating of the pressure-resisting hull. This equalized pressure on the light plates and prevented their becoming deformed due to pressure.
the superstructure increased her reserve of buoyancy in the surface cruising condition from about ten percent to over forty percent and lifted right up to the seas like any ordinary type of surface vessel instead of being buried by them in rough weather this feature of construction has been adopted by the germans italians russians and in all the latest types of french boats it is a principal feature which distinguishes them in their surface appearance from the earlier cigar-shaped boats of the diving type this ship-shaped form of hull is only suited to the level keel submergence end of john p holland and simon lake part one recording by william tomko Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.